Good morning. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. One of the things I love about this community is that it is a place of peace. And as our name suggests, we, we are called to be sanctuary, to be a place of shelter and refuge, a place where people can, can heal in safety. But because we are a sanctuary in which God is present, it's not always only safety. It's not always only healing. There's also a way in which we're confronted by the otherness of God and by the the call of God. I was reading this week in the journals of Mother Maria of Paris, fascinating figure. If you don't know about her story, you should should search it out. And she, she said this, and I want to share it with you before we begin today. It would be a great lie, she said, to tell those who are searching, go to church because there you will find peace. The opposite is true. The church tells those who are at peace and asleep, go to church, because there you will feel real anguish for your sin and the world's sin. There you will feel an insatiable hunger for Christ's truth. There, instead of becoming lukewarm, you will be set on fire. Instead of being pacified, you will become alarmed. Instead of learning the wisdom of this world, you will become fools for Christ. And this this is a vision for our community, to be a place of sanctuary where those who need it, when they need it, can find a place to settle and rest And then the rest of us can be unsettled and given holy unrest so that we can be moved into what God purposes for us. And I am grateful that I can sense God doing that. He is making us that kind of people in this kind of place. I want to read from Isaiah 58 this morning, this word of the prophet Isaiah to Israel, a word of judgment and and a word of grace. Isaiah 58, verse 1. We'll read this text, and then, and then I'll pray. Shout out. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. And at this point, we're anticipating what such a list might include. We, of course, know what sin is and are sure that we know what the prophet will list. But notice what comes instead. Day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways. That seems an odd way to begin a list of rebellions and sins. Day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They pray for me to judge them, to bring justice. They delight to draw near to God. This is the question they ask. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why do we humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, God answers, you serve your own interest on your fast day. You serve your own interest and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble? Oneself, is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into into your house, when you see the naked, to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? 
Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. This is the word of the Lord. God, I pray that you help us to hear what you want us to hear. You invite us into your home as your friends and guests. Help us to hear your word of peace and grace and truth and to respond in gratitude. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. We have to be careful not to spiritualize this passage away. We, we have this temptation reading these texts in ways that hold them at some remove from us. I, in Bible college, I had to take a class on fasting. It was a class we met once a week for one hour to talk about fasting. And this text, Isaiah 58, was the central text for the course. But we misread the text utterly. Like, because we read it as a text about two kinds of fasting. The first is fasting religiously, and that's just going through the motions of fasting. The other was fasting spiritually, fasting with a heart for God. And the argument that the teacher made in the course to us that has stayed with me all this time is that if you fast with a heart for God, then God will break the yoke from off your life. God will free you from oppression. God will cause you to prosper. The problem is, that's precisely what the prophet is critiquing. Their desire for God is not what will save them. It's what's getting them into this trouble. They delight to know God. They draw near to Him. They delight to draw near to Him. They are people of prayer. They are people who love God and love being people of God. And it's that that the prophet says is the problem. Because they're drawing near to God in a way that actually hardens their heart to their neighbor. Now, this is hard for us to hear. This misreading of Isaiah 58 just makes the point. For those of us who have grown up in churches that focus on loving God, suggesting to people, either saying outright or suggesting to people, that if you just love God enough, everything else will fall into place. It's hard for us to hear this kind of prophetic critique. Because the answer to every problem we've been told is just desire God more and everything will straighten itself out. Everything will fall into place if you can just get a heart for God. But here again, the heart for God is the problem because it's a heart for God that aligns with their own self-interest. It's a heart for God that will bless them as they want to be blessed. It's not a heart for God as God actually is, but as they imagine him to be. It's a heart for God after their own image instead of a heart for God who is interested in making them in his image. In Greek and in other languages, the, there's a word for medicine that also is the word for poison. We get our word pharmacy from it, actually. And there's a way in which we need to think of all of this Christian life, all, that we, all of our spirituality, as ha having this kind of double-edged reality. It can be medicine or it can be poison. There is a kind of prayer that's death, 
and a kind of prayer that's life. There's a kind of worship that is poison, and there's a kind of worship that is life. There's a kind of fasting that will kill your heart, and there's a kind of fasting that will enliven your heart with the heart of God. There's a kind of religion that leads to nothing but self-righteousness, and there's a kind of religion that leads to the righteousness of God. And we have to be discerning about what's actually taking place. And here, I think, is the test. If it's genuinely the medicine of God and not poison, it sensitizes you to your neighbor. It makes you more aware of the needs around you, not less aware. It brings you into contact with the brokenness of the world and opens you up to it. What we believe about Jesus, the one who is fully God and fully man, is that in him, in his life, the full complexity of human being was opened up to the full mystery of God. That everything that God is was brought into contact with everything that creatures are. In all of the ugliness, in all of the confusion, in all of the darkness, the full complexity of human life, the full mystery of divine life touch in Jesus. And that's precisely what should be happening in us. We should be the place where that happens, where the full mystery of God is allowed to come into contact with the full complexity of human being. But if we don't seek God the right way, if we seek God only in ways that fit our own interests, that will never happen. So we have to be people who have a certain kind of rhythm in our life, a rhythm of drawing near to God in such a way that opens us up to our neighbor. And we move from that closeness with God to closeness with our neighbor from recognizing God's heart for them to recognizing their need and our inability to meet that need as we should, which then drives us back into the heart of God, drives us back to seeking Him so that we can be shaped in His character, which, as we are shaped in His character, drives us back out to the need of our neighbor. And we live with that rhythm. Jürgen Moltmann, German theologian, has this beautiful image of the breathing of the body of Christ. And he said, there is the inhale that gathers us into the body of Christ where we are drawn in by the Spirit and brought near to the heart of God. And then there's the exhale of God that sends us out, bearing the sweetness of God's presence to the world. And that a, a faithful community and a faithful believer is someone who's living in that rhythm, the rhythm of being drawn in by the Spirit and then breathed out by the Spirit who's gathered by the call of God and then scattered by the call of God, who, who come to encounter God here and then go to live as God there. Christoph Blumhardt, German Lutheran theologian in the 19th century, he, he put it this way. Every believer must again and again in his life or her life experience two conversions. A conversion from the world to God and then from God back to the world. Not once, but again and again turn away from the things of this world, away from the brokenness of the world, away from my own brokenness, and fix my attention on God. And in that, be transformed. But that can't stop the rhythm of my life. I have to turn from that, be converted back to my neighbor again and again and again and again. And that Christian life is lived in that rhythm, that breathing in and breathing out, that converting to God and converting away from God. To the poor. The prophet is clear. Stop oppressing your workers. If you see someone who's hungry, feed them. If you see someone who's naked, clothe them. This is at the heart of the teaching of all of Scripture and of the Jewish and Christian tradition, that we are called to care for those who are in need. The poor is not just one economic class in whatever society we happen to be living. The poor is whoever's nearest me who's in need. 
Whoever is near to me and has a need is poor in that way, whatever their economic class, whatever their social standing. And my responsibility is to see that need and to see to it. God is the God who sees and sees to what he sees. And as God's people, we recognize the need and we meet that need as well as we can. We do all that is possible to meet these needs. We, we attend to the poor. This, again, is at the heart of our tradition, at the heart of, of who we are. And we can't afford to forget it. John Chrysostom, who's one of my heroes, the early Christian theologian, preacher, and bishop, he moves from Antioch, where he was bishop, to Constantinople. This is the fourth century. He's been given the, the most privileged position in the church to be bishop of this city at this time. But what he encounters is a, a lot of wealthy, powerful Christians who've cut themselves off from the needs of the poor. And one of his first acts as bishop, and you can realize how this led to him being exiled from the city, one of his first acts was to establish leper colonies in the communities where the rich Christians lived. Now think about that. Imagine the bishop establishing leper colonies in our gated communities. What would that do to us? Like, What kind of disruption, what kind of holy unsettledness would that bring? And what he says to them in their preaching over and over again is if you cannot see Christ in the poor, you cannot see Christ at all. If you can walk past that leper in your neighborhood to get to church, it's not God you're finding here. It's some reflection of your own heart. And we have to find ways to see the world as God sees the world. To come near to God so we can see God as he is and then see the world as it is. Fritz Eichenberg was a, was a famous woodcutter and artist who made his living and made his, made his name making illustrations for famous books. He, he did Alice in Wonderland. He did Dostoevsky's Grand, Grand Inquisitor, Brothers Karamazov. He did... All of these classic texts. One day, he's in New York City, and he stumbles into an encounter with Dorothy Day and her Catholic worker ministry. And they strike up a friendship. And eventually, she asks him to contribute to her magazine. And he does, and he makes a number of, of drawings and sketches. There are two that are particularly famous, and this is the first one. It's called Christ of the Breadlines. Christ of the Breadlines. And you can see in this image, you've, you've got Christ in the midst of these men and one woman who are standing waiting for bread. Now, there's so much about this that's striking, but what I want to Im impress first is the way in which Christ is present, and his presence illuminates all of them. The only light that's in this image is the light from his halo. The light from his glory illuminates every, all the other figures. But they don't know he's there, and they remain in the bread line. So there's a way in which the irony is the bread of life is present, the light of the world is present. It's enlightening them that, so that we can see them, but they don't know that he is there, and it isn't changing their circumstance. They remain cold and hungry. They remain with hands out waiting to be fed. Now this, this, I think, witnesses to something we have to understand about the way God works in the world. Sometimes Jesus breaks bread and feeds the 5,000, but most of the time Jesus is present to the hungry, and they remain hungry. Most of the time, he's present there, and yet their circumstances do not change. One of my colleagues at the seminary brought this to my attention in ways that 
It startled me that I'd never noticed it before. You remember in Matthew 25, you've got this picture of the last judgment, the sheep and the goats, and Jesus is saying the same thing to both of them. And what he says is, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then to the goats, he says, I was all of those things and you didn't do anything about it. What's striking, my colleague Dr. McMahon pointed out, is that the first three are problems that get addressed and fixed. I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was naked, you clothed me. But the last two are not fixed. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. There are some things in this world we're not going to fix, but we still have to be present. There are some problems that we will be caring for endlessly. We can provide care, but not cure. We can be present, but we can't right the problem. We can't fix it. We have to engage patiently. And there's no way to engage in faithful Christian ministry without recognizing that sometimes all we can do is be present. But be present in a way that recognizes Jesus is there. And that it's in his light that we see anything at all that we recognize the humanity of these people that we're engaging. And then one other image. This is by David Jones, a British poet and painter, called The Sending Forth of the Apostles, Christ Sending Forth of His Apostles. And you'll notice that here the disciples are moving in, in a direction that takes them away from Christ. Christ is glorified, He's radiant, haloed, He's making the sign of blessing, The tree of life is behind him, and the disciples are being sent out. And what strikes me about these two images is the way in which they seem to be made for each other. It's as if you can see these apostles being sent to the figures we saw in the previous image. Imagine them as, as matching pieces. And notice the heaviness that's on the apostles. They're not singing and dancing. They're not smiling about this being sent. They're weighted with the sentness. They're carrying the weight of the call out into the world. They've turned their backs on Jesus, but only so they can face the same direction he's facing. And this is at the heart of that rhythm I'm I'm trying to point to, that there is a way in which we move toward the haloed Christ. We move toward the glorified Jesus. We move toward his blessing. And then if we really encounter Jesus, we turn our backs to him and face in the same direction he's facing and carry that calling out to the world. We have this wonderful phrase in English of carrying something out. It means to finish it. You carry it out. You, You bring it to completion. That's what we have to do in worship every week. We come in here and we do the liturgy. We celebrate the Eucharist. We hear the word, but it's not over when we finish here. It's just begun. We've got to carry it out. We've got to leave here and carry out the Eucharist in the world around us. We've got to become the body and blood of Christ that we receive here. And we will only do that if we know how to fast. And this is the heart of the prophet's wisdom. The heart of the wisdom of God that is foolishness to the world. That you have to fast from your own interests so you can taste the suffering of those in need. You've you've got to stop indulging your own appetite in order to get an appetite for the person next to you and to recognize what they need 
One of the early church fathers said this about fasting. If you're going to fast and be grouchy, be better not to fast at all. And if you're going to fast from food and devour your neighbor, it'd be better not to fast at all. The key is to fast in ways that give us an appetite for what God wants and it allows us to taste the suffering of our neighbor. And this is what I think we're called to do. You and I are called to do. Become people who know how to taste the suffering of others. Let me give you just a few examples so you know the kind of thing I'm talking about. A story of a man, I've shared it here before, but I'll share it again. We'll call him Claude, although that was not his real name. Claude was from rural Tennessee, had been raised had never left the county for most of his life. And he was a kind of typical working class white Tennessean. Right? If you've ever spent any time in the South or the Deep South, you, you get a feel for what that might be like. In the church where Claude attended, there was this a kind of revival that was populated almost exclusively by illegal Hispanic immigrants that just sweep into the church became up to a half of the congregation. Think about what that would do to a congregation over time, to have a third or a half of those who attend be new, not only to your community, but to the culture. Many of them don't speak the language very well, if at all, and many of them are illegal. But over time, Claude, at first, was incensed by it. It offended every sensibility he had, But then he did, leaving the county for one of the first times in his life, he did a short-term mission trip to South America. Then he started making friends with some of these people in his church. And then there was a raid in which a lot, not not all, but many of the men who were illegals were arrested and deported. And Claude, in the midst of that, said this in a testimony to the church. He said, when these people (laughs) came here, you know why I'm laughing. You can hear like that, all of that prejudice and all of that presumption in him. When these people came here, I thought this had to be put to an end. This was not right. But now I've lived with them. They've learned my language and I've learned some of theirs. And now I realize Not only do I not have the answers, I don't even understand their questions. That is tasting the suffering of someone else. And it humbled him. It humbled him. It didn't just change his ideas or make him shift his political views. It changed his heart. It changed the way he encountered the humanity of those people and his own humanity. That's the work that God wants to do in us. I had a a class at ORU, I don't know if Colton was in it or not, he may have been, where I I talked about the work of the Spirit and gifts of the Spirit and how the work of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit are not always about joy and power and victory. The Spirit also draws us into the depths of suffering. And the next day, one of the students who had been in the class came to me and she asked if she could talk to me. I said, of course. She said that after class she had been kind of praying about that and dwelling on that, feeling a kind of nudge from the Lord to take it seriously, and that night, she had gone to Walmart late and to pick up some stuff to eat, 
And she was standing in line to pay. There was only one checkout counter open. She was standing in line, several people back. And the man at the front of the line, she said, was so drunk, I could smell the alcohol from 10, 20 feet away. And she said he was irate. He was cursing the woman who was helping him. He was speaking to her so vilely. And several of the other people in the line were starting to get angry with him and call him names. And she said, I remembered our class discussion, and I asked the Lord to help him. And she said, when I asked that, as soon as I said it, she said, all I can say is I felt his shame. And she said, it knocked me to my knees, and I couldn't stop weeping for him. That is tasting suffering. Now, what would it look like if we were the kind of people who were willing to let the Lord open our lives up to taste the suffering of the people who are acting like fools? Listen, there are people all around us who are acting foolishly. They're saying what they shouldn't say. They're doing what they shouldn't do. They're out of line. But if we're going to respond like Christ, we have to see past that superficiality to what's happening in the depths of them. What's the shame there? What's the fear there? What's the guilt there? What is it in them that is causing them to be destroyed in these ways and to be destructive in these ways? We have to taste that suffering if we're going to love them as Christ loved us. We have to fast from our own interests enough to know what it's like to taste the suffering of other people. That's what we do in this Eucharist. We're going to, in just a few moments, come to this table together and we're going to eat the brokenness of Jesus. We're going to feast on his suffering so we can be healed, so we can be made whole, so that we can turn around and carry that out to the world where we can eat the suffering of our neighbors and strangers and enemies and bring them into contact with the healing mystery of God. That's who we are. That's what we're called to do. As we do that, we enable people to experience epiphany. This is the season we're in, epiphany, the light of God. The prophet says, if you will do this, if you will bring the homeless into your homes, if you will give bread to the hungry, if you will break the yoke of oppression, then your light will break forth in the darkness and your gloom will become like noonday. If we will live like this, we will provide people with the opportunity to have an epiphany about how good God actually is. If we will learn how to taste their suffering, they can learn to taste and see that the Lord is good. If we can respond in ways that are gracious, they will encounter in that graciousness the sweetness and the goodness of the God who's claimed us. They will have the epiphany. They will see the light. And that's who we are. That's what we're called to do. We have to become like the prophet Oded. It's a terrific name. I encourage whoever's about to have a child, I know you're having baby dedications next week. If you haven't yet named those children, I, go, I, I suggest Oded. Oded was a prophet in Israel, of the northern tribes of Israel. I have no idea what it means. Do we, do we know what Oded means? Do you know? Okay. Well, we'll find out. We'll, give, we'll come up with a beautiful Christian name, <laughs> a meaning for the name. Let me know when you've done it. So Oded is a prophet in the northern tribes of Israel, and this is during a time of civil war. And the northern tribes have allied with some Gentile nations, and they're at war with their brothers and sisters in the south. And the story, it's long and complicated, and there are victories on both sides. And, and interestingly, strikingly, there are prophets on both sides. But in this particular case, the northern tribes have won a great victory. 
And they've killed, according to the story, hundreds of thousands of the, their kin in Judah, and they've taken hundreds and thousands captive. And they're coming back in victory. So they're, they're coming back in celebration for this victory God has given them. And Oded the prophet meets them outside the gates of the city, and he says, stop. The Lord has been against Judah because of their sins. But now your rejoicing and your wrath has come up to God as a judgment against you. Do you think, this is what he asked them, do you think you can take as slaves your own kin? Now I want you to hear the word of this prophet. These people that you defeated in battle, they were living in sin. You were given the victory over them, he says, because God was against their sin. But now you've rejoiced in your victory over them, and God is no longer against them. He's against you. And this is the word we need to hear. If someone is wrong and treats us or someone else wrongly, and my response to them is wrong, if I abuse the abuser, if I attack the attacker, if I curse the cursor, if I respond in ways in which I wrong those who have wronged me and others, God's anger is against me. That's the prophetic word. That I can only overcome evil with good. That I have to bless those who curse me. I have to turn the other cheek. I have to go, if they ask for my outer coat, I have to give them that and my cloak as well. That's the call of Jesus. And the prophet is warning his people, you cannot rejoice in your victory. These are your brothers and sisters. And for Christians, every war is civil war. Everyone is brother and sister. No matter who they are, no matter how foolishly they're acting, they are yours because they are made by the same God who claims you. They are claimed by the same God who loves you. They are loved by the same God who's at work in you. We can't be against them. We can call their sin sin. We can speak against that injustice, but we cannot enslave them. We cannot abuse them. We have to taste their suffering in such a way that we become their liberators. And this is exactly what happens. Oded gives that prophecy. The soldiers disperse, no longer singing, no longer rejoicing. And then it says certain chief men of the city took the prisoners and fed them and clothed them and anointed them with oil and led them back to Jericho, the city of palms, to their families. That is what it looks like to be peacemakers. And as people who are living in, in a culture that is in a kind of apocalyptic culture war, I mean, it's, if, if you'll let me use this analogy... We culturally are in Atlanta after Sherman's march. Like everything is burned to the ground, and if it's not yet burned, it's burning. And Christians need to be the kind of people who recognize we have to respond differently. We have to respond differently. We've got to find a way not to be caught up in the spirit of that conflict, but in the spirit of the Lord to speak peace where no one else can speak it, to speak forgiveness where no one else wants to speak it, to take the wrong and taste the suffering because we trust that if God can turn our hearts to him, he can turn their hearts to him. And so I leave you with this. We have to engage this knowing that it is a promise 
and not a burden. The call to your neighbor is not law, it's gospel. You can't leave here today and feel overcome with responsibility for your neighbor. You need to leave here today feeling the weight of that responsibility, but knowing that because Christ is risen, even that is possible for you. Because greater is the one who is in you than anything that could be against you. There's a promise in this text, and this is what what I want to to say last. He says to them, "When, when you do this, your light will break forth, and I will make you like a spring whose waters are never dry. And I will satisfy your needs in parched places. Now, I hear, I hear that promise as incredibly precise. You will become like a spring of water. And God will satisfy your needs, but only after you are in the parched place. Because for Christians, we find joy in the midst of suffering. We put our bodies in the place of brokenness, and there God promises to make us whole. We go into the desert, and there God promises to make us a spring of life. We, we trust that God's promises to us personally, the promises to make us well, to give us joy, to give us strength, only come to fulfillment as we engage with those who have no joy and have no strength. That it's precisely as we put ourselves in relationship with those who are broken that the healing of God happens for us as well as for them. And so I want you to hear this promise this morning. Whatever it is that you need, whatever you need, it won't be met by you attending to your own interest. But turn your attention in the same direction Christ's attention is turned. Find that neighbor who needs food or clothing, who needs to be rescued from oppression in whatever way. And when you are giving your attention fully to them, without you even realizing it, in that parched place, your needs will be met. And out of you will spring living water. And the same life that's in God will be in you. And the same healing that's in God will be in you. And the same peace that's in God will be in you. And we will be the body of Christ in the world. Let me pray for you, and then pastor's going to come. God, help us to hear this as a promise, as a call, as a possibility that you have generated for us. Help us to be your body in the world, to carry out this meal you've given us. Give us that boldness and that confidence. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.